At some point in church history, the last 150 years or so, something that has been called easy believism started being taught as the doctrine of salvation. Now, easy believism isn't like the technical term. That is more or less the derogatory term uh, that it's called by. Easy believism basically teaches when you're saved, here's how you're saved. You, You make a decision for Jesus, you pray a prayer, and then you just sort of wait to go to heaven. With easy believism, there's no change of life. There's no newness of life. There's no really nothing here and now in this life that changes in us because we have been saved. Rather, there is you make a decision, you pray a prayer, and then you just wait to go to heaven. And that's very common in our day. It is very commonly taught in our day. This is what it is. But I wonder if we if we just took God's word and we began to read it, if we just took the words of Jesus, the Gospels, and we began to read what Jesus said, would we come up with the idea salvation was making a decision, praying a prayer, waiting to go to heaven? No commentaries. No other sermons, nobody telling us this is what it means. But just if we studied on our own, is this what we would conclude? Jesus came and died to purchase for us. I don't think it would. Nothing in God's word leads me to believe salvation is making a decision Praying a prayer and then waiting until Jesus comes to take us home. Nothing I see in God's word leads me to believe salvation is based upon a decision we made in the past. A prayer we prayed in the past and it has nothing to do with our lives on a daily basis. In fact, everything I read in God's word leads me to the exact opposite conclusion. The salvation Jesus died to provide, it does change our eternal destiny. But it also has a profound impact on our daily lives. In fact, I would go so far as to say a salvation with no profound impact on our daily lives does not change our eternal destiny. According to God's word, change is part and parcel of salvation. Listen to just a few of the changes God's word describes for those who are saved by Jesus. We're changed into a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. We're changed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Colossians 1 and 13. We're changed from being spiritually dead to having eternal life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. We are changed from slaves of sin to being slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, 17 and 18. We're changed from being controlled by our flesh or our sinful nature to being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 and 9. We're changed from being a natural person to a spiritual person. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14. We're changed from being carnally minded to being spiritually minded. Romans 8 and 6. 1 Corinthians 2.16, and we are continually 
being changed from glory to glory. Second Corinthians three, eighteen. And that's not an exhaustive list of all the ways God's word says we are changed as we come to Jesus for salvation. This was just a a few that I came up with off the top of my head. If we were to do a study on all the times and all the ways God's word says we are changed by Jesus as we come to Jesus, it would be a fairly lengthy study. When Jesus came, he changed things. When Jesus came upon the earth, the world was different. After his being here. But not only was the world different. When Jesus came and people met Jesus. And they came to Jesus. They were different afterward. People who come to Jesus. And meet Jesus. Leave different. Always. That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to Mark 2 verses 18 through 22. Is what we're going to look at today. When you find that I want you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Should be page 762 if you have a Pew Bible. Mark 2, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Title of the message this morning is Changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion. Father, we thank you for your word. What a clear guidance it gives us on how it is to live for Jesus and what it is to know Jesus. Father, we thank you today that Jesus changes things and he changes us. Father, I rejoice to know that I am not who I once was. I long to be more fully changed into the likeness of Christ, but I am glad for what you have done and are doing in my life. Father, guide today as we look at what Jesus said. Let us understand the reality of of change from him. Help us, Father, to really understand what, what's being said and what happens. That, that the changes we're talking about, they're not. It's not about the effort we put in. It is just about what naturally happens because we know Jesus. Help us, Father, to understand this. Let your spirit reveal this to us. Challenge us. Father, if there's some in here today and and they've not been changed and they are the same as they've always been, cause them to see they need Jesus. and Let them turn to him and be saved and let him sanctify them and make them who they ought to be. Help us, Father, not to be complacent. Not to, to rest on the fact that we know Jesus and we've been changed a little. But let us always be looking for the more. 
Let us always be in the process of being changed from glory to glory. Not be complacent, not be lethargic, but be fervent in spirit, seeking what you want for us. Fill me this morning with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say what you once said. Nothing more, nothing less. Have your way in all of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. In many ways, Jesus was a polarizing figure. People seemed to either love him or hate him. There wasn't a whole lot of in-between. Jesus tended to upset people everywhere he went because of what he did and because of what he said. The most common people Jesus upset were the religious leaders. We see this in pretty much every story in this chapter. Jesus upset the religious leaders in verses 5 and 6 by forgiving sins. He upset religious leaders in verse 15 through 16 by eating with tax collectors and sinners. He upset people, uh, religious leaders in verses 23 and 24 by letting disciples collect and eat grain on the Sabbath. Chapter 3 starts off with Jesus upsetting religious leaders. He just... Upset people everywhere he went. And he upset people because he was different. They had an idea of what a rabbi was supposed to be. They had an idea of what a teacher was supposed to be. But Jesus wasn't what the religious leaders and the people at large expected. He didn't associate with the people they expected him to associate with. He didn't say the things they expected him to say. He didn't do the things They expected him to do. This was all very intentional with Jesus. This wasn't a matter of Jesus not being able to read the room and just making the wrong decisions. Jesus intentionally did what was different. Because Jesus did not come to do what had always been done. Jesus did not come to perpetuate the same sort of self-centered, self-righteous religiousness the religious leaders had created. Jesus came to change things. It's what we see in this passage. The religious leaders thought righteousness came through external religious actions like fasting. They were so focused on what could be seen on the outward acts of religion, they they neglected what was happening inwardly. Outwardly, they gave every appearance of being devoted to God in ways that astounded the regular people. But inwardly, Jesus would say at one point, They were like whitewashed sepulchers. They were pretty on the outside, but inwardly they were filled with dead man's bones. Outwardly, it appeared Jesus wasn't devoted to God because he wasn't fasting and doing the things the way they thought things should have been done. But inwardly, Jesus set an example of what it meant to be devoted to God. For the religious leaders of the day, Serving and worshiping God had come, had become all about the externals. For the most part, they did not even care about what was going on in their hearts, what was, what they were genuinely like on the inside. All they cared about was doing their do's and not doing their don'ts. Jesus came to change things. This change Jesus brought us further explained in verses 21 and 22. Jesus said, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away. And the new uh, pulls away from it the new from the old, and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine into old wine skins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. Jesus, he, he uses two illustrations to make the same point. He didn't come to patch up the old; he came to make something entirely different. He, he didn't to make it personal. Jesus didn't come to patch up people; he came to make an entirely 
different people. He came not to patch up our brokenness, but to make us entirely new. And he tells these two stories. The first is about the cloth. You don't take a new piece of cloth and sew it on an old garment. If you do, the old cloth, when the new cloth shrinks, it will tear the old garment, making it worse. You have then ruined the new garment by cutting it. And then you have ruined the old garment or made the tear worse as they pulled apart. By mixing the old with the new, you end up ruining both. Then he tells the story of the, the wineskin. In this time, wine was stored in goat skins, sewn around the edges to form watertight bags. Doesn't that sound appetizing to drink from a goat skin? Anyway, um, new wine, it expands as it ferments. This required the new wine to be put in new wine skins they were, that were soft and pliable. And they would stretch as the wine fermented. On the other hand, the old wine skins had already stretched as far as they could stretch. They had dried as far as they could stretch. And so when it came time to stretch, they would explode. Think about putting, filling up a plastic water bottle or a glass water bottle to a full to the top and putting it in the freezer. What happens is the ice expands. Well, the, it shatters the glass. That's what would happen if you put new wine in an old wine skin. You ended up ruining both. The point is, Jesus didn't come to, to patch up a self-righteous system. He came to make it new. Jesus didn't come to patch up broken and wounded people. He came to make them new. Jesus has always brought change. So what we see all throughout God's Word, when we read the Gospels, we're going to see this over and over again in Mark, Jesus Change things. Just think about it, even in our our gospel readings these last few weeks. How many times did Jesus say, "You have heard it was said, but I say to you," He was bringing something new. He was making changes. But not only did Jesus bring change, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He brought change then, and He brings change now. This is the key truth for us to understand. Jesus brought change then. And he brings change now. Jesus came to bring change. Real and legitimate change. He did come to change our eternal destinies. No doubt. And as I mentioned earlier, that is significant. And I never want to make light of that or act like that's not an entirely massive ordeal. It is. But he didn't just come to change our eternal destinies. He came to make legitimate changes in our lives now. He came to change the way we live our day-to-day lives. And He doesn't just change us once. He changes us over and over again because the ultimate goal is to be like Him in every way we can be like Him. The, The changes Jesus brings are so significant that when the Apostle Paul writes to people, he tells them to to examine themselves and see if there is evidence of this change in their life. Look at what he says. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you failed the test? Now, We don't have time to get into the church of Corinth, but they were a very problematic church. They had lots of issues. 
They were carnal. They were half-hearted in their devotion. And in seeking to call them to repentance and to return to Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells them to examine themselves to see if they were genuinely saved. That's the point of this. See if you're really saved. But as he did, as much as we want to see what he did say, let's first notice what he didn't say. Right? He's calling on them, are you saved? Examine yourselves to see if you're saved. But notice he didn't say, are you saved? Did you come to an altar and pray? He didn't say that. He didn't say, did you make a decision? He didn't say that. He didn't say, did you pray a prayer? Have you been baptized? Do you attend church? Were you raised in church? Were your parents Christians? Are you basically a good person? He didn't ask any of those things to see if they were saved. He tells them to examine themselves to see if there's evidence of Jesus being in them, right? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. How will they know if they're in the faith? If Jesus Christ is in them. And if there's no evidence of Jesus being in them, that means they have failed the test. So if there is no evidence of Jesus, what it means is they're not saved. If there's no stuff in their life testifying of Jesus and his work and his saving power, They're not saved. Now, that should be a startling statement because it implies these people who profess faith in Jesus may not actually be saved. And it should also be a startling statement because what it means in our day is people today could have a profession of faith in Jesus and actually not be saved. If there is no evidence of Jesus, then there is no evidence of. Of salvation. Now the Apostle Paul isn't trying to shame them or throw condemnation upon them. He wants them to genuinely be saved. That's the point. If you're saved, you need to repent and go back to doing what you should do for Jesus. If you're not saved, repent, believe, and be saved. This is the point. What Paul says here is not something we should take lightly. He isn't being sarcastic. He isn't joking around. He's not... Exaggerating to make a point. He is legitimately telling them. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That if there is no evidence of Jesus in their life. They have failed the test. And they are not saved. We in the day of easy believism. We in the day of nominal Christianity. Carnal living. And half hearted devotion to Jesus. We need to test ourselves. In the light of God's word. To see if there's evidence of Jesus in our lives. And as we examine ourselves, God's word must be the standard. We can't focus on our feelings. We can't follow our hearts. We can't go off what our mom and dad told us. We can't judge based on what the culture tells us. We must examine our lives In the light of God's word and honestly be realistic about what we see there. So what I want to do today is look at God's word and ask ourselves, is there evidence of Jesus in our lives, in my life, in your life? And we are mostly going to focus on the words of Jesus himself because our culture 
typically likes Jesus. And they think of Jesus as a guy who just sort of said, if you love one another, you're good to go so long as anything else. That's really not Jesus, not by any standard of what we see in God's Word. People today would have us believe Jesus was the ultimate and easy believism teacher. But this is not who He is. So with, with this in mind, that we need to examine ourselves. to See if there's evidence of Jesus, because Jesus always comes to bring change. As we ask and as we look, let's be sure we're asking in light of our secret lives, not merely our public lives. Now, I say our secret lives because it's easy to be one thing in public and something entirely different where no one else is around. This is what the religious leaders did. Publicly, they were righteous. Secretly, they were filled with dead man's bones. It's easy for us here in Gaiman where everyone knows us and they know we go to church to be one way. And then if we go off to a place where no one knows us to be something entirely different. Now, that says something about us. That says something about who we are and what we're really like. We should... Examine ourselves in light of our unguarded moments. In light of the way we are when no one else is around. The way we are when no one sees. The way we are when all the guardrails we put up for social acceptability are gone. Who are we genuinely and truly in our heart? We examine ourselves in light of that person. Not in light of the public persona we put on. Now, listen, I'm not saying you're not the same. Right. If you tell me you're the same in public as you are in private, I'm going to believe you. I love you people. I absolutely believe that you love Jesus with all your heart and you live a life of integrity. I'm not saying you don't. But what I'm saying is. History. Even recent history reveals. Someone can be one thing in public. Something entirely different in private. And if there is a difference. Then we want to examine the private Not the public. Because the public is the image. The private is who we really are. So, with this, I have three questions, I think. First is, how has Jesus changed my life? If you want to, you can turn with me to John 3. We're kind of going to go all over today. We won't come back to Mark, I don't think. John 3. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. John 3, a familiar passage. Jesus says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a person be born when he's old? He can't enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus says twice to Nicodemus, no one enters the kingdom of God 
without being born again. The kingdom of God had a deep meaning for Nicodemus and deep meaning for us, which we don't have time to get into. But for our purposes today, think of no one entering the kingdom of God as no one going to heaven or being saved. No one is saved without first being born again. No one goes to heaven unless they've first been born again. Now, the image of being born again is significant. It, it speaks of, again, not a decision, not a prayer, and then we coast until we die. It speaks of being made entirely new. Remember, one of the things that happens is we are made into a new creation, Second Corinthians 5.17. This is the process of being made into that new creation. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. We turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. The Spirit of God regenerates us. He causes us to be born again. We are given an entirely new nature. The heart of stone is taken out. A heart of flesh is given to us. The spirit of rebellion we have is taken out. And the Spirit of God is given in its place. And we are an entirely new creation. Being born again changes us. Not just our eternal destiny, it changes us at the core of our being. It changes our, our wants and our desires. It changes everything about who we are and how we are. Being born again changes our character. We, we live differently because Jesus has put His Spirit within us. We have been born again. It, it changes our values. It changes our priorities. It changes the actions we take. It changes the way we react to stressors. It changes our speech, our morals, our relationships, how we treat people. It changes everything. So with this, what is the evidence of this change in your life? What is the evidence of this change in my life? How has Jesus changed you? How has Jesus changed us? What actions do you take just because of Jesus? Not, not because you're older, right? I turned 50 this year. There are things I won't do now that I did do in my 20s. In my 20s, if we went floating down the river, I would jump off the side and go into the spot between the two rocks under the water to dive in there. I would not do that now, but that's not Jesus. That's because I break easier now than I did in my 20s. Right? There are things I don't do now that I did do in my 20s, but it's not Jesus. It's just I'm older. I'm wiser, hopefully. I'm more fragile. I hurt worse. It takes longer to recover. I'm not talking about those sort of things. Not just because you're older. Not just because you're married. You know, there are things I did as a single man I don't do as a married man. Those aren't the changes. If the change is just because I'm married instead of single, that's not what we're talking about. Even because you have kids. A couple without kids does things a couple with kids typically won't do. So I'm not talking about that either. I'm not saying, what if you do because you're emotionally matured? Not because of any external circumstances, just because of Jesus. What actions in your life are there simply because you have been born again? Simply because you know Jesus? Now, there could be many, but there should be some. What's different in your character? Because of Jesus. 
Again, not because you're older. Not because you've gotten married, not because you have kids, not because you've emotionally matured, not because of any external circumstances, just because of Jesus. How are you different in the way you interact and you act in the world around you just because you've been born again and you know Jesus? It could be a varied ways, but there should be some. Now, let me be careful here. I want to be careful to say the point with this isn't to say, well, there's not any, so I should try harder. Trying harder won't fix the problem. Trying harder is what the Pharisees did, and it still left them dead on the inside. Trying harder will fail if there is nothing, if there is no evidence of Jesus changing your life. Your need is not to try harder. Your need is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith, and be born again. Now, the changes will be different. Don't get me wrong. We're not all going to have the same amount of evidence in this area. But we should all have some. And if I cannot point to anything in my life that's different just because of Jesus, I need to seriously question whether or not I've been saved by Jesus. Jesus came to bring change, and He still changes things today. This includes us. How has Jesus changed your life? Secondly, do I love Jesus? Now, on the face of it, this seems easy. Of course, I love Jesus. We, we sing it. We, we say it. But what is Jesus' love language? How do we express our love for Jesus? Is it just by saying, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you? Or is there something more? But most importantly, what does God's word say about this? What does God's word say is the the number one sign of actually loving Jesus? Well, turn to John 14. So just over a few pages, should be 823 if you have a pew Bible. These Again, this is Jesus. John 14 and 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at verse 21. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will follow my word. Look at verse 24. The one who does not love me does not follow my word. Now, we all know there are lots of places in God's word that are difficult to understand. To find out what they meant, what they mean, how we should live them out in our daily life. These verses are not those. These are plain and clear. In fact, they they are as plain and clear as it gets. Jesus said, if you love me, you will. Now, I love that you you will keep my words. The one who has them and keeps them, that's the person who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will 
But what about the one who who says he loves Jesus, but doesn't obey his word? The one who does not love me does not follow my words. Again, isn't it interesting what Jesus doesn't say? Jesus doesn't say, if you love me, give a, a powerful testimony about how much you love me. If you love me, sing a song about how much you love me. If you love me, post on Facebook how much you love me. He doesn't say that. What does he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Clear. Clear as day. And if you don't keep my commandments, there is one reason for it. You don't love me. That's it. We can say we love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can give testimonies about how much we love Jesus that brings everyone who hears it to tears. But if our lives don't match our words, then our words don't essentially matter. And that sounds rough, but it's still the truth. Now, some might ask, does this necessarily mean I'm not saved? I don't love Jesus as I should, obviously. But I did make a decision. I did pray a prayer and I was baptized, so I'm saved, right? To any sort of question along these lines, I would honestly say it is it is absurd to think we can be saved by Jesus, but not have a deep love for Jesus. I mean, think about what we're saying. I've been saved. How was I saved by Jesus? Well, I believed that he was God who was born of a virgin. And I believe he lived a sinless life. And I believe he died a horrible, miserable death for my sin. He was punished for my sins. He took all the punishment I deserved. And after taking hell in my place, he gave up the ghost and he was buried for three days. And then he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and through his Holy Spirit, he then called me to come to him. And I didn't come right away. Maybe you did. I didn't come right away. Jesus called me for years and I pushed and resisted and rejected. And he didn't smite me. He didn't kill me. He patiently and lovingly drew me. And then one day I came. I repented. I believed I was born again. Could I truly believe that message? Be saved by the one who did all of that and not love them? I mean, is that legitimately possible, do we think? How? How could it be possible? How could I genuinely believe Jesus did all of that for me? Genuinely repent of my sins for which Jesus died. Genuinely cry out to Him and then that not leave me with a deep and abiding love for Him. I don't think it could. In fact, we don't have time, but if we were to look at 1 John, John lays it out that we can't. Jesus makes it clear. So clear, there's not a lot of wiggle room at all. A love for Jesus should produce a lifestyle of obedience to Jesus. This is a change that happens, though. This is something that happens because I have been born again. I I didn't 
I mean, honestly, I didn't love Jesus before I was saved. Now, I respected the idea, but, but I didn't love Jesus. And I demonstrated that with my life, with my words, with my actions all the time. But when I was born again, I, I mean, I, I certainly wasn't perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. But I had a deep affection for Jesus. And the things of Jesus, when I got up that day, that change of affection, that, that, I mean, that's one of those things we can't do. You can't make yourself love somebody, can you? You can't make yourself long for somebody. So a change in affections to love Jesus and want Jesus and want to please Him, that's a change He makes within us. Now, let me say, this isn't saying... If we love Jesus, we never sin again. I wish it did. <laughs> that would make my life so much easier if I love Jesus so much I never sin again. But we're, we're going to. The flesh is still here. It's still pulling. And we are going to fail. When our love for Jesus does produce this lifestyle of obedience to Jesus, we are still going to blow it. But here's what's going to happen. In those times when we blow it, we will be broken over our sin. Not, not I'm going to get caught and I'll be embarrassed. No. Not, I've sinned and now God's going to break my legs. No. I've sinned against the one who has loved me with such an amazing love. I have sinned against the one. I, I took pleasure in what sent Jesus to the cross. It will break our hearts and we will repent. And we will... Try to live more fully for Him. The person who loves Jesus has a deep longing for holiness and purity because they want to keep His commandments. They want to do His will. But if our supposed love for Jesus does not produce a lifestyle of obedience, we're not really bothered by our sins. This testifies of something. And what it testifies of is we do not love Jesus because we do not know Jesus. Because we've not been saved by Jesus. Again, the point here isn't if your love for Jesus doesn't produce a lifestyle of obedience, try harder. Trying harder won't work. You can't make yourself love Jesus more. Only Jesus can cause us to love Him. Only the Spirit of God can cause us to love the Son of God. If there is no love for Jesus as evidenced by the life we live, then our need is to repent of our sins, believe in Jesus, and be born again. And when that happens, we will begin to love Him in ways we never did before. We never even believed were possible. This is a part of the way He changes us when He saves us. Jesus brought change then and he brings change now. And one of the changes is we begin to love him. And then thirdly and finally, is my faith in Jesus alone? Almost certainly, the main religion in America is good people go to heaven. While those who don't believe anything about God and eternity are rising. Most Americans still believe there is a God and there is an afterlife. 
Most of those who believe there is a God and there is an afterlife believe the afterlife is broken up into the good place and the bad place, whatever names you may want to give them. And most of those who believe in God and the afterlife believe those who are good go to the good place and those who are bad go to the bad place. Those who are good as they define good go to the good place. Those who are bad as they define bad go to the bad place. Now, this is a a natural way for people to think. There, there is there is nothing Jesus-y about that sort of a mindset at all. It is very natural to look at creation and think, wow, there must be a creator. It is very natural to think, surely we're meant for more than just living in this life. Surely there is something beyond here and now. It is natural to think if I do good, I go to a good place when I die. And if you do bad, you go to a bad place when you die. That's not, that's not a biblical worldview. That's just a naturalistic worldview that there's probably more than what we can see, touch, or smell that exists. That way of believing is not Christian. That way of believing is not the Bible. And a part of what Jesus changes when we meet him is our view of who goes to the good place and who goes to the bad place. Jesus, what well, John, this is not the words of Jesus, but it's the end of John chapter 3. And it's based off what Jesus said in John 3 and 18. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now notice, it doesn't say that good people have eternal life and bad people have the wrath of God remaining upon them. It says those who believe in Jesus have eternal life and those who don't believe have the wrath of God abiding on them. Salvation, everything about salvation rises and falls on what God has done for us in Jesus. It was God who came up with the plan of salvation we call the gospel. Jesus coming and dying and rising again was all God's idea. No people thought of that. It was God who gave his son to come to earth in our place. It was Jesus who lived sinlessly. It was Jesus who died sacrificially. It was Jesus who rose victoriously. It's the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to see our need for Jesus. Not one of us that are saved were just sitting at home one day and said, I need Jesus. It wasn't our thought. It was first God dealing with us. No one comes to me except the Father draw him is what Jesus said. So it's the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to our need for Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who drew us to Jesus. All we did in the whole process was believe. We believed what God planned for His Son to come and die in our place. We believe what Jesus did. He died in our place. We believe what the Spirit reveals. Jesus died in our place. This belief is active or specific and active. It's specific in that it's more than believing there is a God out there somewhere. This is important. People who believe in God die and go to the bad place 
every single day. Believing in God does not save. Believing in Jesus is more than believing that Jesus existed. You know, there are atheists who believe that Jesus existed. They believe that most of the teachings we have regarding what he said are true. They they believe he died much in the way the Bible describes. They don't believe he rose again, though. They don't believe he died for the sins of the world. There are people who believe in Jesus who will die and go to the bad place. Because just belief in a generic Jesus isn't enough. What we must believe to believe in the Son and have eternal life is very specific. It is belief in the person and the work of Jesus on our behalf. We must believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Again, it's not enough to believe Jesus died. And it's not even enough to believe Jesus died for the sins of the world. We have to believe Jesus died for our sins. I must believe Jesus died for my sins. You must believe Jesus died for your sins. We must believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Literally, bodily rose from the dead. Not His Spirit rose from the dead. Not a a story about Jesus rose from the dead. No! Jesus literally, bodily, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will never die again. If we don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that is not a salvific belief. We we are far short of being saved. And we must believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is the only hope for salvation we have. So this is crucial too. I believe in Jesus and I believe good people go to heaven. That's not the right kind of faith. That is not faith in Jesus. I believe in Jesus and I've been a good person so I'm going to heaven. That's not the faith that saves. I believe in Jesus so I'm going to heaven. That's it. That's the faith that saves. If we have faith in anything but Jesus to save us, we're Not saved. We have to believe there were no good works we did that earned our salvation. We have to believe that there were no good works we would do. God didn't save us because of the good things he knew we would do after we were saved. That's not. We have to believe there are no good works we have done that helped in our salvation. We're saved simply because. Of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We're saved simply because he died for our sin and he rose again. And my hope and my faith is based solely upon that. I talked to a guy once and we were talking about this and he said, Preacher, if the blood of Jesus doesn't save me, I'm not going to make it. He had it. He had lots of issues, but he understood that. This belief requires us to let go of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness says, I I did a good work. I'm a good person, and so I'm going to go to heaven. That's self-righteousness. Anything that we say, because of this in me, God saved me. Because of this in me, I'm going to heaven. 
That's self-righteousness. And that actually pushes us away from Jesus. We have to let go of that to grab onto Jesus. Self-sufficiency says, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I can't do it all on my own, but I did some. I did these good works. I'm a good person. I believe in Jesus, but yeah, I'm a good person as well. That keeps us from Jesus. We cannot cling to self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and the cross at the same time. We have to let go of one to grab on to the other. The grabbing the other is where the active nature of belief comes into play. When we believe that Jesus alone saves, the natural result is to reach out and take hold of the salvation being offered to us. I've used this illustration before, but imagine you're drowning. There's someone in a boat and you're flailing and you're trying to keep your head above water, but it's not working. All your flailing is making it worse. And someone reaches down to grab you. You try to grab onto them to do it. And as you do, you're making it worse. And what you have to do in that moment is to let them grab onto you and stop flailing. Stop moving. Stop fighting. And let them lift you up out of the water and onto the safety of the boat. That's a great picture of what Jesus does. When He calls us through the Gospel and through the Spirit, it's a hand reaching out. Come to me. And when we grab the hand, we have to stop the flailing and stop the working. And it's an acknowledgement of I can't add to it. I can't fix it. I can't do it. If Jesus doesn't save me, I'm not going to be saved. This belief in Jesus leads to repentance. Change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Right? So if I begin to believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin, it's going to change my view, my view of sin, isn't it? I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to want it in my life. If I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin, I'm not going to believe that I'm righteous and good on my own anymore. I'm going to turn from that and turn to Him. I'm not going to believe good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. I'm going to believe saved people go to heaven. And unbelieving people go to hell. It's a repentance. It changes my mind. The result of a change of life is we begin to follow Jesus. Again, this is a not the effort we do. This is just a natural result. Jesus really died on the cross for my sin. And He really lifted me up out of the flames of judgment. And He set me on a path and said, follow me. I'm going where He's going. I'm doing what He's doing. I'm not going to be lifted up and say, thanks pal, I've got my own thing to do. I'm just naturally, I'm going where He goes. I'm going to follow Him in my life. This, again, all of this is what, what happens when we believe. So the question, question, do you see evidence of Jesus in your life?
Do you see legitimate changes in your life because of Jesus? Do you see a love for Jesus in your life? Do you see a change in who saves and who goes to the good place in your life? Listen, I don't want to make anyone afraid. My goal is not to make anyone fear or to cast doubt on the certainty of anyone's salvation. But better, better to spend some agonizing time questioning and be sure than to confidently go about my life and when I stand before the Lord, hear Him say, Depart from me. I never knew you. There's more we could say, but these are the basics. If you cannot point to a change in your life because of Jesus, you should worry that you're not saved. If you don't see a love for Jesus that produces actions in your life, you should worry that you're not saved. And if you think people are saved by any reason other than faith in Jesus, whether you're talking about yourself or other people, you should worry that you're not saved. Jesus changed things then, and He changes things now. The only people who ever left Jesus the same were those who rejected Him. What is the evidence of Jesus in your life? Let's bow our heads. Let's go ahead and stand. I want to give time to to respond this morning. To look at your life, to ask the questions, to answer them honestly. I urge you to take seriously those questions. I plead with you to take seriously the lack of evidence of Jesus in your life. Be sure, be very sure. I'll pray. You can come to the altars if you want. You can pray where you are. Father, we love you. Search us and try us. Help us to see if there's genuine evidence of Jesus in our lives. If there's not, Make us very aware of that. Make it very clear we're not saved. If there's not, the devil's already saying he don't know what he's talking about. Things are different now. All kinds of things. You're a good person. All kinds of things. He's saying to counteract the words of Jesus to deceive us into hell. Give Him no place in any lives today. 
Stop up our ears to the lies of the enemy and open our ears to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. If we're here and and we've sort of stagnated in our growth and our changes that Jesus has made, stir us with a greater desire for more. Let us live a life surrendered to you so that we can be in the process of being changed from glory to glory. And at the end of each day, each week, we could see we are more like Jesus than we were the week before. Have your way in all of our hearts and all of our lives. We ask in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.